Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. When I woke up from the fentanyl haze, I saw that my IV tube had been removed from a vein in my left hand. There was a little purple bruise where the needle had been. I was wearing one of those starchy pastel blue hospital gowns. Throughout the large windowless room, other patients rested in their portable beds or flipped through magazines. My wife, Sarah, stood at my bedside. Somewhere in my foggy brain, the setting clicked into place. I was at the outpatient medical clinic and I had just had a colonoscopy. A doctor had probed my intestinal tract with a flexible scope. Something like an alien abduction without the awesome story to tell your friends. Good times. But I was there for a reason. We needed to figure out what was wrong with me. For several months, I'd been exhausted. I would get up to start my day, then slump back into bed within a few hours, barely able to function. Prior to this gradual decline, I had plenty of energy. I would routinely split and haul wood for hours at a time. I would swim and bike and kickbox and play with our daughters. Now I was out of breath climbing the stairs. So, after months of typical male stubbornness, I finally went to see my primary care doctor who ordered me to get a comprehensive blood test. She said I was probably fine, but we should start kicking the tires of my health. I figured I was tired because, you know, life. I was 41 years old with a wife and two young kids and my own business as a writer and public relations consultant. Add in some low-level chronic anxiety, and I thought I was just in an extended funk. Two days after having my blood drawn, my doctor had called. We need to talk about your lab results, she said. It was 8 o'clock on a Friday, and we needed to talk about blood work. Not the best sign. She told me there was hardly any iron in my blood. I was extremely anemic. I was not in urgent need of a blood transfusion, she said, but I was darn close. That's why I was so tired. Have you noticed any bleeding recently? She'd asked. I hadn't. Well, these numbers tell me you must be losing blood somewhere, possibly your digestive tract. I'm going to schedule for a colonoscopy ASAP. Don't do anything strenuous. Damn. I had taken the phone call out in our driveway for privacy. When I got off the call, I stood outside for a long time, listening to the muffled sounds of the girls in the house getting ready for bed. I watched my breath in the cold air, rising slowly toward the stars. Come on, I thought. Please don't be something bad. Before the colonoscopy, the gastroenterologist, Dr. K, was upbeat. Turns out we lived in the same town and both had kids in the school district. Maybe it was hemorrhoids or ulcers causing my blood loss, he suggested. After all, I was young, strong, healthy. After the procedure, when the drugs were sufficiently worn off, a nurse came over and said Dr. K was ready to meet us. The mood had shifted. He looked downright grim. Trevor, you have a mass in your ascending colon on the right side of your abdomen. It's large, about 9 or 10 centimeters. It's not obstructing your colon yet, but it's close. It's been there for a while, he said. He looked down at his desk. 
There was a quiet moment before he looked up. We took samples of it for biopsy. You're going to need surgery. I can refer you to a surgical oncologist. Mass. Biopsy. Oncologist. Cancer? You're telling me I have cancer? I asked. Yes, almost certainly, Dr. K said. What the fuck? I looked at my wife. Her mouth had dropped open. We've been together since we were teenagers. Our daughters were 12 and 10 years old. My legs turned to rubber. Until this point, there had been nothing remarkable about my health. I could have stood to lose a few pounds. I drank an occasional bourbon, but I've never had a problem with alcohol. I smoked socially for a time in college and sporadically for a few years after that. My diet was good, not great. I got plenty of exercise. Yet here I was with a softball-sized tumor in my large intestine and who knows where else in my body. My head spun. I gathered myself to ask questions. Can you tell if the cancer has spread beyond the colon? Not sure. I'll need a CT scan. When will we get the results of the biopsy? Within a week. Do you see tumors like this in people my age? Not often, but it happens. Stunned and still foggy from the colonoscopy drugs, I couldn't think of anything else to ask. Sarah didn't speak. I knew she was thinking about our girls. Dr. K shook our hands. He wished us the best of luck. Yes, this is the stereotypical opening scene. The one where a doctor, ashen-faced and solemn, shuts the door and asks you and your wife to have a seat. It's the scene just after a somewhat routine examination in a medical office that could be a thousand other medical offices, where the silence hangs in the air for a beat too long before the doctor begins to speak. The story has to start here. It has to start in this small office with the serious doctor, with his diplomas and coastal-themed artwork framed on the walls. It has to start with this stranger, whose job it is to tell people just like me, and families just like ours, that your odds of living essentially come down to a dice roll. So that was me um, four years ago this month. Um, This month is March 2022. And that was some writing that I did um, not too long after my diagnosis in March of 2018. So I was 41 at the time. I'm 45 now. Um, Our girls were 12 and 10. And now Sage is 16 and Elsie is 14. Um. So this episode is just some reflections on life four years into the cancer journey. It's, I'm going to try not to get too heavy or try to sum up everything because I mean, how do you, yeah, it it would be impossible for me to do like a Cliff's Notes versions of the four years that I've been, that we've been fighting cancer. Um, I'm going to share with you four distinct moments that changed my life. Um, I've told these stories before in different in different formats and in different ways. I tell them a lot just because there are moments in your life when you're going through a cancer journey that you'll always remember. No matter how much chemo fog you have, no matter what happens, they are just cemented there as, as changing moments. So there's four moments that I'm going to talk about today. That first one was, was my diagnosis. I call that derailed. Um, the second one is my Shawshank moment, then meeting Jocko, and then best day possible. 
So I'm going to tell those stories today again. Um, thank you for listening and thanks for giving me the, the forum to do this and for um, sharing in this journey with me and Sarah and the girls. How am I feeling? So before I get to the stories, I just want to go over a little bit about how am I feeling? So four years into this, how am I feeling? And just real quick on what I have been through, I have had four major abdominal surgeries. So a colon surgery, two liver surgeries, and then a cytoreductive surgery, which is basically for tumors that were kind of spread out in my abdomen. Um, so it's called CRS. Um, so I had that. And then I've also had half of my thyroid removed because it had precancerous cells in it. And I've had a couple other smaller things. And, and I have various scars from tubes and tools and, and all the stuff. So that's my surgical history. I have had um, a bunch of chemotherapy and a bunch of immunotherapy. So pretty much I've been in the fight. I've been in the trenches for for pretty much four years. I my fi- So my last surgery was in September 2021 um, at Mass General in Boston. And that was my CRS surgery. And then I followed that up with some more hardcore chemo. And, and then, so for the past about three months, maybe, maybe even a little more than three months, I have been off treatment. I'm now in that period of surveillance, watch and wait, great term, right? Um, whatever you want to call it, but that period where I'm not in active treatment and I don't have a surgery coming up. So this has been really the first time in my journey where I've had, um, an extended stretch of, um, I want to call it freedom, but it's really not. My adjustment to this period has been a little rough. My anxiety, um, around the future and, and recurrence has been high, you know, and I, and I talk about this a lot. Like when you're in active treatment, you, you have a plan, you have a purpose, you're executing it, you know, you're in survival mode. And now I'm in this place where it's my, my teams are just like, yep, you know, you're good for now. Go, go live your life. You know, as, as Wade Hayes would say, the great country singer, um, stage four colon cancer survivor had a song, wrote a song called go live your life. That's what is, he got the same message from his oncologist. Check that song out. It's really great. Um, so I guess I feel overall, I feel privileged. I feel privileged. It's a, it is an absolute blessing and privilege to wake up every day to see my wife, Sarah, to spend time with Sage and Elsie, um, just to have this, to have this life with them, to share this life with them, to continue to share this life with them. When honestly, I, I did not think that I would be here at the four year mark. There's been many points during the journey where I absolutely didn't think I'd make it this far. And so mixed feelings around that in terms of some survivor's guilt. Um, you know, I've made a lot of friends along the way that I've lost and that's, that's hard, but, but I know that they would want me to, to feel these blessings, to feel this happiness. So there's a joy and a, and a sense of privilege of just of living. You know, I go out for my walks with Grace, the dog every day. And, and I'm just so aware of my senses and the things that I'm seeing and touching and smelling. And, and it's just a joy. It's, it's a joy to be in this body and to experience life as a human is a, is a, it's pretty magical. Um, and we all have access to that. We, you know, I don't feel that all the time. No one's going around like thinking about, you know, 
<laughs> how amazing this life is and this universe is all the time. That's pretty ridiculous. But I, I feel it a lot. And, and everyone has access to that, no matter if they have cancer or not. So there's that. I think that's number one. You know, it's just that gratitude. And then on the other side is just really just PTSD, um, the anxiety and the stress from what I've gone through. Um, it's, it's really difficult to, um, it's hard to think about the future without, you know, thinking about when's that other shoe going to drop. You know, to be honest, that fear of recurrence, that wondering, like how much time do I have? You know, the chance of my cancer coming back is very high, but you know what? I also understand that that might not happen. I'm, I'm open to all possibilities and trying to be attached to none. But I'm just going to be honest and say that the anxiety around recurrence is real for me and and is difficult. And that's something that I need to keep, you know, I talk about, I have lots of advice to the guys in my community in Man Up to Cancer around how to do these things, how to cope with that anxiety, the tools we use in the toolbox, whether it's um, counseling, uh, meditation, music, exercise, um, just, and lots more, but I talk about that a lot, but I'm not always the best at doing, using those things myself. So I've kind of found myself in a place where I need to really get back to using some of those tools for my own health and well being. So I, so, so how I'm feeling with that is like, so physically I have like a tremor. It's like, you know, I definitely have like a little bit of a tremor around me from everything I've gone through from the trauma. Um, you know, at night when I try to go to sleep, um, even I usually use my vape pen to, to help me relax and, you know, exercise the demons for a little bit. Um, but even then I feel myself, I'm very jumpy. Um, you know, I'll, I'll jump myself awake a lot before I actually get to sleep. Had a nightmare last week where I actually jumped out of bed and re injured my back. So that was fun. Um, but there's that it's in the body too. There's that, 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 all that physical stuff and that physical anxiety from the trauma that I've been through just very much lives subconsciously and in the body and, and I'm aware of it. And again, I got to use the tools to, to keep that at a acceptable level. And then there's just the, the physical stuff, the physical side effects that I've gone through. So immunotherapy extended my life absolutely and, and worked wonders for me, um, However, it did, we think, we think it's to blame basically for my endocrine system basically being shot. So I'm not producing hormones the way that I should. So I need to, at this point, I'm taking a small dose of prednisone, a steroid every day to basically compensate for my body, not producing hormones the way that it needs to be. I have peripheral neuropathy. Basically that is for me, it's numbness. So my feet are my feet are pretty numb. I can, you know, it doesn't affect my, my gait or much with my activities, but I, there's definitely a numbness through most of my feet. Um, and that's from one of the chemo drugs. Um, oxaliplatin is a nasty chemo drug. And one of the effects is that it, it pretty much wrecks your nerves, um, mostly in, in your extremities. So my feet are pretty rough and my hands have some numbness. Again, it doesn't affect function, but I do have some numbness in my fingers um, and in my hands up toward my wrist. Um, and I mentioned I threw out my back. So 
my core is pretty my Elsie, my daughter would say it's busted. Your core is busted, Dad. Um, so my core is busted from all of my surgeries. So I find my so my back is kind of um, susceptible or vulnerable, and I've had some back issues before, even way before cancer. So I just twisted the wrong way a couple of weeks ago and threw out my back, and then aggravated it again, jumping out of bed. You know the small things in life. Um, so I got to deal with that. So there's you know, and it's like oh, man, I don't have time for this now. I'm rehabbing. For, you know, back injury, it's like, I just want to <laughs> move on. But again, it's like, man, this stuff is small. You know, that's all, that's all minor relative to the big stuff that I've gone through and the big stuff that so many of you are going through. So like to complain about a back, about throwing out my back is I'm pretty lucky to be able to do that. All right. So, so yeah, I guess that kind of sums up where I'm at four years into the journey. Um, like a boxer that's been pummeled, but is still, still upright, still throwing punches. Um, still definitely very much in the fight and, and enjoying it. Um, it's hard. I'm tired. I don't think it's ever going to be easy, but you know what? I'm, I'm doing the best I can every day. And I think that applies to most of you out there. Okay, so on to the second story of the four. So this is my Shawshank moment. So those of you who love the movie Shawshank Redemption will remember the phrase, get busy living or get busy dying. So, and, and I've t- this is like a story that I tell everywhere I go. This is 2018, um, into the fall and into the win- early winter of 2018. I had gone through uh, colon surgery and my first liver resection and I was at the lowest point mentally of my journey. I always say that the, the physical stuff that I've gone through with cancer is nothing compared to the mental piece of it. So I was, I was really basically incapacitated mentally. I was so depressed and so anxious. Um, I wasn't even making phone calls. I was like most days just crying a lot. I wish that I didn't have to go through that, but I know that I needed to, I needed to, that was what I needed to go through. That was my journey. I had to hit that bottom so that I could start digging my way out and get to all the stuff that would come after it. But so I was at a low point and I really didn't see any possibility of turning things around. Like that was the point where I just wanted to disappear into the woods and not be a burden to anyone else. Cause that's what I felt like. I felt like I was just a burden on everyone and people would, my family would be better off if I went away and I would just go and just be sick on my own and then just die. I mean, it was that bad. So a lot of stuff happened to turn that around, but basically the love of my family. I mean, I'm, I'm truly lucky, so lucky to have, um, the wife and the children that I do that they would not let me check out. You know, they, they refused to let me give up. And sometimes that took some tough love. So the Shawshank moment was into that fall, you know, actually into the winter. So this was right around Christmas time, 2018. My wife and I were kind of at our wits end. Like she was, you know, all of a sudden she was, you know, she was a caregiver, but she was caregiving for someone who like, I didn't resemble at all who I was before that. At that point, I was a broken person. And it really took her to get me out of it. It was one particular night. We had a long, crying, drawn-out conversation. She kept imploring me to 
turn it around. She's like, you know, we need you. You're, you're still here. We need you. And I was just looking at her and I was just like, I can't, I just, I'm so devastated. I can't get over the sadness that of, of thinking that I'm going to die and that I'm going to leave you guys. And, and I said, I'm just so, it hurts me so much to think that the girls are going to remember me as sick. You know, that they're going to remember me on the couch and, and go into chemo and in surgery. And like, they're just going to remember me as a sick person. And Sarah kind of just looked at me and, and I knew she had something to say, but I didn't, she was not sure she should say it. And I remember looking at her and I remember saying like, go ahead, just tell me whatever it is you're going to say. You need, just tell me. And she looked at me and she said, I'm not afraid that they're going to remember you as sick. I'm afraid they're going to remember you as sad. And to me, that was, that was really a turning point. That was a moment that I'll always remember and something that changed my life because I'm not a sad person. Like, yes, I have grief. I have sadness. I I have my moments, but in general, I'm someone who's very positive, engaged in life, um, joyous, especially when it comes to time with my daughters and my family. And so it dawned that when she said that, it just woke me up to the fact that she was right. And that was absolutely how they were going to remember me as someone who just this defeated person who was sad. And so that was, you know, it wasn't like I could snap my finger and at that moment be like, okay, great. I'm not sad anymore. Like you've, you've woken me up, you know, life doesn't work like that, but it planted that seed and gave me that it it was a, it gave me a shift in my mindset so that I could see my, I really could see the situation, you know, from her point of view at that point. And thank God that she had the love and the courage to tell me that. So I, so that was the moment where I was like, I said, you know what? I can't turn this around overnight, but I'm going to use everything in my power. I'm going to do everything in my power to get back to that point that no matter how long I have to live, no matter if this disease takes me in six months or 60 years <laughs> or, or that, or if I have 60 years to live that I'm going to make it my mission to get back to the point where I'm living with joy and engagement and um, happiness as much as I can. And that was really the genesis of man up to cancer, because that's when I realized that, that I couldn't do it on my own. I could not climb out of that pit on my own. It was going to take a lot of people and a lot of love and, and different communities that would help me climb out. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what the message is of Man Up to Cancer is that men shouldn't have to feel that they need to climb out of that hole if they're there. And a lot of men get there and they're ashamed to say it or, you know, and then and then realizing that it takes help to get out of it and to accept help and getting over that barrier. So that really was um, the first step making that decision that this way that I was, you know, this depression that I was in was not acceptable to me anymore and that I could do things to, to work on it. So that was my Shawshank moment. My next story is called meeting Jocko. (laughs) So Jocko Willink is a former Navy SEAL commander. He led um, the Navy SEALs in Ramadi in Iraq. 
and just a guy who was born to lead men in combat. And he, so I, I did not know who Jocko was until this would have been right around, oh my gosh, I can't even place this in time, but my good friend, Eric Meyer, um, sent me a text and he's like, dude, you got to check this out. And he gave me this link to basically led me to this album called The Path. And this album is by Jocko Willink with a DJ, Akira the Dawn. And it's basically Jocko Willink's motivational speaking with the DJ um, putting tracks behind what he's saying. And one of the tracks um, includes part of a live show that Jocko did where a stage four cancer survivor got up and was basically like, you know, hey, I'm a stage four survivor. You know, when you were in war and you were going through some of the darkest times, like how did you get from those darkest times to to the brightest times? And Jocko just goes off on this, like basically comparing his experience as a soldier to her experience as a stage four patient. And it was so impactful and and just deep and hit me on every single level. And sometimes in life, you just get hit by a song or an album that just is the perfect message that you need to hear, the perfect time in your life. And Jocko's message throughout this whole album on the path is basically about, <laughs> it's about getting broken and and getting and being able to get back up and to move forward. Um, so this, and, and this never should have happened because my friend Eric is a very, he's an engineer, very, um, grounded, um, type of person. So this type of, this type of music, first of all, never should have been on his Spotify. He said this song that he heard was the last song on his playlist of the week. And he was at work and he wasn't going to listen to this song, but for some reason he went back and clicked on it. And he never, he, he really shouldn't have done that because he wasn't planning to. And then when he heard this song, it was automatic. He's like, I got to get this to Trevor. This is exactly what Trevor's going through. And it just hit me. And it's been, so this album, The Path, has been my go-to media for ever since I first heard it. So if I'm having a rough time or if I'm going through a, a valley in what I'm dealing with, I go to this album. Like, it's that important to me. So that's, you know, this is why this moment meeting Jocko is one of these four moments that I talk about because something like that can change your life. I want to read the lyrics to one of the songs on this album. So this is, this is from a track called Unbroken, Jocko Willink. What do I do when I'm broken? When I'm broken, I relish it. I relish it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use it. If I'm broken, then I just found my limitations. And until I know what my limitations are, how can I push them? How can I get better? But once I feel it, once I see where I was broken, I can attack that weakness. I can fill in that gap. I can reinforce that breach. If you break, it means it's time to fortify your will to make it stronger. When I'm broken, I relish it. And look, there's all kinds of different ways to break. You can break physically. You can break mentally. You can break your heart. You can break your spirit. And none of these are fun. And all of those are going to leave a mark. But the mark that they leave can be a mark of victory or it can be the mark of defeat. 
Because every time you break, and in every way that you break, it's a chance. It's definitely a chance for you to give up and for you to just fall apart. But there's also an opportunity. There's an opportunity to get stronger and get smarter and get faster and get tougher and get more able and get more resilient and get better. When you break, you have the opportunity to show the world, the whole world, what you are really made of. So if you break, the fight isn't over. In fact, if you break, the fight is just beginning. And as you crawl up and out of that dismal and wretched place, and you're covered in blood and sweat and dirt and filth, as you rise above what you were, and as you take the form of who you are supposed to be, you will see in the very act of standing up, in the very act of fighting on, you will become and you will remain unbroken. And I'm sure you can tell just from me reading it that that message has become part of my DNA. And that was really the first time that another man, you know, this tough as nails SEAL commander had said, you know what? You're broken. Okay, you got broken. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) Because I was thinking before that, I was like, okay, I'm broken. I'm done. Like, I'm done. Like, I can't... I can't be redeemed from this. I can't recover from it. And and as I started like crawling out of my pit of emotional shit that I was going through, that was the message that I heard from this amazing leader. And it was like, oh man, talk about fired up. So I, I would have that album every day. I'll listen to it and just got shot out of a cannon. And that coincided with the work that I was starting to do with Man Up to Cancer. So that was huge for me. Just huge. Yeah, so so thanks to Eric Meyer, thanks to Jocko Willink, because I started to be able to put my shame behind me and to say there's no shame in hitting rock bottom. There's no shame in the mental, you know, in the anguish that I went through. The but the but the question is, what am I gonna do? And and that really inspired me to actually take action and get back up, dust myself off, and move forward and make a difference. All right. Last story, my good friend, Lona, Lona Farrell, someone who's always going to have a close place in my heart. So when I started digging out of my anxiety and depression, um, about end of 2018 into 2019, I started to attend counseling sessions and this is before COVID. So we could go, so I would go, um, I can't remember what night of the week was. I think it was the Wednesday. I think it was the Wednesday evening group at the Dempsey Center. So shout out again to Patrick Dempsey and his team for creating this amazing resource for cancer patients and our families in Maine. I go to the Dempsey Center for group. So this is our our cancer group and we're sitting around and there's probably seven or eight of us on most of these Wednesday evenings. And the people are just amazing. Just my people immediately, like I went in there the first several group sessions and was just bawling my eyes out. I couldn't even help it. Like I didn't even feel bad about it at all. It was just like, nope, I'm here. I'd start sharing and I would just become a mess because that's what I needed to do. Like I needed to get out, get that out of me. I needed to process it. And these people, oh my God, so supportive. The most supportive group therapy you could ever imagine. Just 
kind and super supportive and just loving. Man, it was awesome. And at the core of that was Lona. So Lona had this rare neuroendocrine um, cancer that, you know, basically filled her abdomen with tumors. And she had like the mother of all surgeries. Like she had gone through so much and she was actually in remission or no evidence of disease. She was living in Nedville, but she would come to these counseling sessions to be there for other people like me. And oh man, talk about an inspiration. So Lona would always use this phrase. So at the end of each meeting, she would remind us, hey, so tomorrow, I hope you have your best day possible. And this is critical because Lona really taught me about living my best day possible. Notice I did not say best day ever. Like, so best day ever is like, you know, you're running a marathon, you're climbing a mountain, like, you know, this amazing accomplishment, whatever. But in cancer life, like this is not Ferris Bueller's day off. Like the idea of going out and conquering the world is not where most of us are. Like a lot of us on some days are thankful to get out of bed, like take a shower, send one note. And that was the point of best day. That is the point of best day possible because best day possible gives room. It gives space for all those things. Like maybe for some people going through cancer, best day possible is very active and, and lots of activities and engagement in life and doing things outside of the house. But for some people, like I said, maybe it's a lot more simple than that. And, and maybe your best day possible is eating a meal, you know, getting, if you're in chemo, like getting an egg, eating an egg, you know, sometimes that what it is, that's what it is. And her point is that no one should ever feel bad about where they are in their cancer journey. Like if you're able to, you know, get a fork to your mouth and put something in your stomach and that's a, a win for your day, then that's your best day possible. And that's winning. That is winning against cancer. So not to compare yourself about the life that you had, not to compare, you know, the life that you lived before or the life that you imagine you'll be able to live in the future. It's about celebrating what you can do right now where you're at. And so Lona, you know, shared that phrase with me and I want to be able to share it with you because it's really special when you can reframe to look at your day like that. So for all of you, I hope tomorrow is your is the best day possible for you. All right, I just want to give my thank yous. There's way too many people on my list to thank individually. It's insane. So four years into the journey, I will just say this. Sarah, Sage, Elsie. Hard to express words. Um, you guys are my rocks, my heart everything, my world. And thank you for loving me through this and not never giving up on me. My extended family and friends, you, you know who you are. I don't need to name all you. My oncologists, particularly my quarterback through all of this, Dr. Devin Evans at New England Cancer Specialists. Devin, thank you so much. My, my surgeons, many of them, nurses, other healthcare providers, my online families, Colon Town, my man up to cancer family, Joe Bullock, my rock in MUTC from Durham, North Carolina. Joe, you know how special you are, man. I love you, brother. And to all the 1,500 strong 
of the man up to cancer howling place group to ha- to know that you guys have my back no matter what just unconditionally and for you to know that I have yours is has been another privilege of a lifetime you've all gotten me here and I thank you all for it I'll talk to you next time guys bye bye Thanks for listening to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. If you want to support our mission, visit patreon.com backslash manuptocancer. Monthly subscriptions start at five bucks, less than a single cup of coffee at some establishments. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack doors are always open.